0: This morning, we are going to be looking at Exodus 3, verses 1 through 14. Please open uh, the Bibles that you have brought with you, or there is a Bible in the pew in front of you as well. Again, that's Exodus 3, verses 1 through 14. It is such a, a privilege to be here this morning. Um, Again, I am Andrew Beckering, uh, the previous uh, youth director over at Mount Calvary. I know there's a lot of connections to that church um, and a lot of kin to that church. Um, We've been here at least for a couple weeks now um, and excited to be here with you this morning and excited to um, worship you in in the near future at least as well. Um, Exodus 3, this is God's word, a beautiful word, a glorious truth that we get to look at this morning. Exodus 3, beginning at verse 1. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go up to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that we have your word. Lord, that each of us can have your word in our homes. Lord, that we can uh, read it often. Lord, we thank you so much that you uh, give us a time uh, once a week. A set apart time where we can come and we can hear your word preached. and that you're specifically and specially with us this morning. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is here, that your word is here. Lord, and that you have so much good for us from this message. Lord, you have so much grace. You have so much you want to show us and teach us. Lord, that we might faithfully know who you are and that we might love you more. We might walk after you more faithfully. We thank you. Open our eyes, open our hearts and our, and our ears. Praise on Jesus name. Amen. The sermon title this morning is, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? Names are uh, so arbitrary. My name is Andrew because my parents liked the way it sounded. Um, my oldest son's name is Ezekiel because it was a strong and a biblical name. And, and yet, still, there was nothing about Ezekiel that necessitated we name him Ezekiel. He wasn't born and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, he has to be in Ezekiel because of the way he is. Names are arbitrary. And yet, names pack so much meaning. With every name, there's a story. If I were to say to you the name Parker, right, you all have an image come into your mind, maybe a story, an idea. There's something that you uh, correlate the name Parker with. Or the same if I were to say the name Kathy. Some, some of you will think of someone that you really appreciate and you love and you have great stories and thoughts about it. Some of you will have bad thoughts on the name Kathy. Names have stories. There's so much meaning in names. That's why, uh, at least for my wife and I, it is so hard for us to choose names for our children. Uh, because every name has a different meaning to each of us, right? She might have a name that she really likes. I'm like, no, I had some kid in, in my high school with that name. There's no way we're naming our, our child that name. Names pack so much meaning. And in our text this morning, we are given the name of God. We are shown the beautiful name of Yahweh, and and most um, um, uh, most of you will know that when we speak of the name Yahweh, that that name is revealed to us here in Exodus three, Yahweh, um, and I want to not only just look at the name but really understand the meaning behind the name Yahweh this morning, because God not only gives us His name. But he gives us real meaning and truth and purpose beyond that name. But before we get into the meaning of the name, I want to give some background to this name. So if you look in God's Word here in Exodus 3, in verse 4 and 7, you see this name. Um, You'll see it written out as Lord. And yet, um, the O, the R, and the D are all capitalized. So it's a little smaller font, and yet all of the letters are capitalized. And that name... Um, is set apart for us in even our English Bibles where all the letters are capitalized so that we know this is speaking of Yahweh, the covenant personal name of our God. And this name is defined for us in verse 14. It says, uh, the Lord says, I am who I am. God says, I am that I am. But when we call God God, his name, we don't say I am, we say he is. So he says I am, we say he is. And we use the same verb root um, that he used for I am, we say he is, and that is Yahweh. So when we say Yahweh, we are saying he is. right? Not Not relating him to anything because he is beyond anything that we can relate to. He just simply is. Now, the name Yahweh has always been a very special name to God's people throughout the entirety of um, the existence of the world. So, because it's so important and so special to God's people, we actually don't um, perfectly know how to pronounce the name Yahweh. We can have confidence that you do pronounce it Yahweh, and yet, we don't know for sure. And that's because the Hebrew Bible was actually written with consonants onlys. So there was no vowels. So if you can imagine your Bibles, uh, just consonants, no A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y, just consonants. So they wrote with just consonants, um, which is really not that crazy, though, right? We've all played those games online uh, where you have like words, letters all messed up, and ones in the wrong spot or whatever else. And in our minds, the way that God has created us, um, we can still read that word, right? We can decipher what it is, but Without the vowels, it's hard to know exactly how to pronounce the word of God. So the pronunciation of the Hebrew Bible was actually passed down through oral tradition. So um, the the teachers would teach uh, the children and the parents would teach their children how to read God's word, how to read it right, pronounce it the right way, um, so that people could just have the consonants and still know how um, to understand the word uh, and to know what it meant. But as time went on, Biblical Hebrew became less and less a spoken language. And over time, Biblical Hebrew was not spoken. It was not a a normal spoken language anymore at all. So as this oral tradition began to cease, um, people no longer knew the language that the Bible was written in. Um, So we have a problem. Uh, We have an oral tradition, but that oral tradition is coming to an end. So there was a a group of people called the Masoretes. And in order to preserve the biblical text and to avoid ambiguities, um, they added vowel pointings into the Old Testament text. So, these group of Jewish scribes in the 5th to 8th century AD came up with this elaborate system in order to add vowels. So that um, previously when you only had consonants, you knew what it was because you knew God's word. Now you have consonants and vowels and we can know how to um, um, pronounce it. The text could be preserved and understood even when the language was dead. But, um, so if you ever see, uh, Hebrew Bibles, usually you'll see the consonants and then there's just dots all over the place and little lines and squiggly things. All those dots and lines and squiggly things were added by the Masoretes so that we could understand the word even though that language has been dead for centuries now. So we can have confidence that when we have, when we look at God's word, we know it. Because these uh, scribes added in those pointings before the language was fully dead. But, the name of God, Yahweh, was held in such great honor and was set apart so much that they did not want to write in the vowel points for Yahweh. Just in, just in case someone was reading the Bible, specifically like a kid, and they came to the name Yahweh, if they if that kid spoke that name... Uh, the Jewish scribes thought that that would be blasphemy. So they were like, we do not want them to speak the name of Yahweh. So what they did um, is they added pointings from a different word, uh, Adonai, uh, which means Lord or Master, but that's like a, a human Lord or a human Master. They used those pointings with the consonants of Yahweh, put them together, and that's how we actually get the word Jehovah, the okay, name of the Lord, um, but really an impossible pronunciation of the name of the Lord. But they put those different pointings under it to make sure that they, that everyone who was reading it knew, all right, this is speaking of the Lord, um, so we know that it, it should be Yahweh, but they wouldn't say that name. But also, they didn't want people accidentally speaking the name of the Lord, which they thought would be blasphemy. So in our text, um, God is revealing his name, this name, Yahweh. And we often refer to it to as the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Lord, Jehovah. And as God is revealing his name to Moses, we see him not only state his name and give his name, but we see him give so much meaning to it. And that's what I would like to focus on now. Let's get away from some of that technicalities and let's look at our text. Let's see how in these 15 verses the Lord really gives meaning, packs meaning, into his name. And oh, how beautiful the revealing of the name of the Lord is. We see in our text, as the Lord gives us the meaning of his name, we see first, that the Lord comes down. Secondly, that the Lord cares deeply. And thirdly, that the Lord certainly delivers. First, the Lord comes down. Secondly, the Lord cares deeply. And thirdly, the Lord certainly delivers. This is what we have before us this morning, a condescending, caring, and delivering God. So first, let's look at verses 1-6 through 6 and see how the Lord comes down. We see in verse 1, Moses tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. And he comes to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. And all of a sudden, there's a burning bush. And yet, that bush is not consumed. And it's a really mysterious sight. Moses sees this bush, and it's not consumed. Moses takes notice of it. And in verse 4, we see the Lord call out to Moses from the midst of that bush. Moses, Moses. Moses responds, here I am. And as God is in His presence, God says to him, you better take shoes off your feet. um, That would be like taking your hat off in the presence of someone you respect, or nowadays taking your AirPods out so you can listen to your mom and dad. Uh, You are in God's presence. You need to show me that respect. Um, You are before the God of your fathers. I'm always amazed when in stories of the Bible... God all of a sudden just comes down and reveals himself. Uh, it seems like out of, out of, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, God enters in to people's stories. And that's exactly how this begins. Moses is just minding his own business. He's now been out of Egypt for 40 years. Uh, you remember, uh, Moses, um, killed an Egyptian because he was, uh, the Egyptian was being unrighteous toward a Hebrew. So Moses kills this Egyptian, people hear of it, and Moses flees now out of Egypt in um, to be with Jethro, his father-in-law, um, and hasn't been back for 40 years. Now, all of a sudden, after these 40 years, the Lord comes to him. Now, unlike Moses, who isn't in Egypt, God's people, the Israelites, are in Egypt, and they've been slaves now for 430 years. And over that time, they have increased greatly in number. When they came to Egypt, Jacob, or as we also know him, Israel, comes with his 12 sons and their whole family. Um, And they're brought because uh, Joseph has brought them there. Remember, Joseph uh, had a lot of power in Egypt, saved them from famine, and then brings his whole family into Egypt. And now, 400 years later, that group of people, the 75 people that were there with uh, uh, Israel and then Joseph and their family, 75 people have now grown to 603,000 adult men. So roughly 2 million people. That's gone from 75 to what we see in Numbers 1 verse 46, roughly 2 million people. And in Exodus 1... The Lord tells us that Pharaoh did not like such a large group being in his land. And Pharaoh disliked this so much that he began to really oppress the Israelites. The Egyptians were scared of this large group being in their land, so they made their lives miserable. And it's here, right? this huge group of people, the Egyptians hating this group of people, it's here that the Lord, from our vantage point, all of a sudden comes down. And meets with his people. He enters into their story. The people don't initiate this. The people don't all of a sudden remember, Oh, there's this covenant Lord uh, who's, who's good and gracious and loving. Uh, we need to call out to him. We need to uh, rip off our clothes. We need to bow before our Lord and, and go to him. They don't all of a sudden have a change of mind. No. The Lord, when these people have pretty much lost all hope, be suffering under this great oppression, the Lord all of a sudden decides to stoop down and begins a saving work. He comes to them. In verse 2 it says that God came to Moses. How did he come? He came in a flame of fire. And this is actually a really important detail. We can't skip over the idea and the truth that God came to him in fire. Really often, God reveals himself to his people in fire. While wandering in the desert, the Lord was a pillar of fire by night. That's what he was. He, he revealed himself as a fire. In Exodus 19, verse 18, um, it says that Mount Sinai, right before the Ten Commandments, was completely in smoke. Why? Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The Lord revealed himself as fire. And Exodus ends with the cloud of the Lord being above the tabernacle by day and fire over it by night. It is not strange that the Lord would reveal himself to Moses in a fire, the God of light, the God who judges and purifies. But there's also an instance in scripture before Moses' time where God has already revealed himself as fire. And we see that in Genesis 15. When the Lord comes to Abraham, the Lord comes as fire. The Lord makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And he promises Abraham two things. First, that he will have as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. Right? And we already see this really already being quite fulfilled in Egypt, where these 75 people have turned into 2 million people. He's going to have so many offspring. The second promise is he's going to give them a land. And that land is actually the same land that we see in our text in verse 8. So Abraham's promised two things. You're going to give all this offspring. To which the Lord has really almost fully fulfilled that. But also there's the second aspect of this covenant promise. There is this land. It says, the Lord says to Moses, um, after he says these two things, promises these two things, the Lord um, seals this promise in Genesis 15 verses 13 through 14. Here, um, this, is, this is many chapters before Exodus 3. The Lord says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. Okay, So that's exactly where Moses is. Sojourner servants. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So in Exodus 3. When we come to Exodus 3. We have a direct connection to the covenant that the Lord made to Abraham in Genesis 15. 600 years after Abraham uh, the Lord says this to Abraham. Now the Lord comes to Moses. To fulfill specifically. That second part. Of this covenant that he made to Abraham. And this actually is where we see the Lord come as a fire. Okay. So the Lord comes to Abraham. Not only gives this promise. But comes to him in fire. Abraham asks. How shall I know. That this promise is going to come true. How can I How can I be sure. And the Lord um seals this promise with a covenant sign. The Lord has Abraham bring him a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And Abraham is to cut the cow, goat, ram in half, and put half on one side and half on the other for each animal, and then the turtle dove and the pigeon. And, And he makes this like pathway in between all these dead animals. And then we see when it's dark, a smoking pot, In a flaming torch, God himself, as a flame, passed between these pieces. This flaming torch goes between these dead animals. And the Lord is making a promise and an oath. And as the Lord in this flaming torch walks through this pathway of dead animals, he is saying, I promise that these two things, this covenant will come true. I promise that so much that if I don't fulfill this promise, I am to be like these dead animals. He swears upon his life. He says, if if I don't complete this promise, cut me in half. Kill me. He promises on his life. So at this point in history, when we come back to Moses, 430 years after they've already been enslaved in Egypt, the Lord had to come. There, there was no way around that. The Lord had to come. His character and his nature were at stake. He made this promise to Abraham And he was not going to break this promise. Our God cannot break promises. So by the time we get to Moses, the Lord had to fulfill this promise. He had to come down and bring his people out of this slavery. The Lord comes as a fire. And yet notice that in verse 2, although the bush is speaking to Moses and the flame is speaking to Moses, really it's the angel of the Lord within the flame that speaks to Moses, The bush was not necessarily speaking, but an angel of the Lord, or maybe better translated, the messenger of the Lord, was within that flame speaking to Moses. So who is this messenger? What is this angel of the Lord? Well, we see that this messenger is referred to as the Lord, with, with all the letters being capitalized, in verses uh, 4 and 7. And he calls himself not only God, but this angel of the Lord calls himself The I am who I am. So really, this doesn't seem to really be a messenger of the Lord, but it seems like this is the Lord himself. Could this be God himself coming down? Right. If if he's referred to as the Lord, if if he's honored and set apart as the Lord? Well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. The Lord himself, God himself, comes down. More specifically, this is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Before He comes as fully God and fully man, before He takes on that human form, we read throughout the Old Testament many instances of the pre-incarnate Son coming down and revealing Himself to God, or to people. The Son of God coming in some visible form to His people. It's not abnormal when you read through the Old Testament, to see Jesus come to his people. Jonathan Edwards says this, When we read of God's appearing after the fall, from time to time, in some visible form, or outward symbol of his presence, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it, as the second person of the Trinity. He says, When you see this visible form, or the symbol of God, ordinarily, if not always, you are to think of Jesus the second person of the Trinity. So, so far in our text, we see the Lord, really Jesus, before his incarnation, come down to meet with Moses. He has come down to save his people. Our God, the Lord. As we look at his name, first of all, we need to see that he is a Lord that comes down. He didn't stay in heaven. Uh, He didn't stay far away. He has come down. And that's actually specifically said in verse 8 as well. And we know that this is not the last time that the Lord is going to come down. Specifically, that the second person of the Trinity comes down. We see Jesus, and really that name is specifically for the the, the Virgin born son of Mary, right? That is his name um, in his incarnation. And yet that's the name that we most closely associate with the second person of the Trinity. But but Jesus comes down in Genesis 15 and walks through those dead carcasses. We see Jesus now speak to Moses in Exodus 3 and make this grand promise. And we also, and ultimately see Jesus, come down, not stay in heaven, come down to this earth. In his incarnation. We have a God. When you look at the name Yahweh, you need to know we have a God that comes down, comes to his people. But why does he come down? Why does Jesus, at this point, come to Moses to speak to him? Is the second person of the Trinity trying to be worshipped, or is he trying to judge? What's he doing? Well, that's where we um, are going to look in verse 7. That's the second point of our text. The Lord comes down because the Lord cares deeply. The Lord cares deeply. In verse 7, we see three verbs connected to uh, our God. Three verbs in verse 7. He has seen the oppression of his people. He has heard their cries. And he knows their sorrows. Our God cares. He sees, he hears, and he knows. He sees when his people are suffering and being oppressed. He hears their cry for help. He knows their suffering and sorrow. Psalm 34.15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ear toward their cry. He could not stand their sorrow anymore. He could not let Pharaoh continue his hateful oppression. He hears them. The Lord says, No, those are my people. I have a plan for them. I have claimed them as my own. I have a promise to them that I must fulfill. A promise of blessing and of hope and of joy. And the time has now come. He comes because He cares. And while what a beautiful revelation of who our God is, as we look at what the name Yahweh means, we see not only a God who comes down, but a God who cares, who sees, who hears, who knows. Who knows. But also in verse seven, we are given a little bit of an understanding of who this God is and, and about the name Yahweh. First, we understand that God is eternal. So He is not bound to time or space. He is always and He is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Which means that, uh, when, when you, um, and, and my family and everyone else, when they are suffering, God is not bound. So He can see everyone. And he can hear everyone. right? Of all the churches that are worshipping today on the Lord's Sabbath, the Lord sees and hears and knows all of it. right? This is a God who is not bound to time or space. This is an eternal God. That's why he calls himself the I Am. That's why we call him the He Is. Because he is not compared to anything. We can't compare him to anything. He is self-existent. He's not bound to anything. He just simply is. But not only is God eternal, but we see in verse 7 that God is personal. He says, I know their sufferings. This is a beautiful phrase. We don't have a God who is just eternal, just the creator, uh, just magnificent in who he is. But we have a personal and a relational God. He is personal and he empathizes with his people. And this is one of the most amazing truths throughout all of scripture. One thing that you and I as human beings want more than anything else in the world. We want to be known and we want to be loved. We want to be cared about. You and I spend our entire earthly existence trying to find this. Trying to, trying to be known. Trying to be loved. And that's exactly what the Lord does for his people here. That's exactly what the Lord offers. He offers you himself. He offers you a relationship with Him, a personal connection with God. This is a personal care that we can compare to parents with children, right? Um, now, this is less. This is far less because parents can't see everything, right? They're not eternal, and yet parents see a lot, and they hear a lot, and they know a lot. In a finite sense, they they care and know about their children, but our children might not know. Uh, this care and this knowledge and this love right so children don't know that you know right so oftentimes <clears throat> parents of teens will hear uh, but you don't know right when in in reality you do know maybe it's not exactly the same current issue um, but the same reality and the same problems with humanity that existed when you were a teen exist now for our teenagers and while our children might not always know that we care, there's not a second. There's not anything that we don't care about our children. So, so as parents, we know that we know and we love and we care for our kids. But do you know that about God? Do you know that he knows? Do you know that he knows? Do you believe that about Yahweh? Do you believe that he sees and hears and knows? Because we know from our children that that's hard. That even if we know that someone knows, we can't completely know that they know. When you're sad, and when you're discontent, when you're filled with a lack of completeness, when you're hurting, when you're filled with sorrow, when you're overwhelmed, when you're crippled by fear, when you're the victim of injustice, do you believe that Yahweh knows and cares? What an amazing proof that you and I have that He cares, because the Lord comes down. The Lord has come. The Lord proves His care and His love and His knowledge by coming. Um, we we know this. Um, we know uh, how awesome it is when people who care show that they care by coming. Right? I've felt this uh, a couple of times, but one time. Um, I remember most specifically, the first time I went to preach, um, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the first sermon that I was going to preach was 45 minutes south in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I had such an overwhelming joy um, and just felt so cared for when I looked out over the pews and half of the people that were there drove that 45 minutes just to show that they loved and cared about me and wanted to support and encourage me. They, they, They cared and they showed that care by coming. Um also we see the importance of people showing up because of they care in movies. Some of my children's favorite movies have something to do with someone who loves and cares another person so much that they're able to take this long journey in order to get there. Some movies, that's the entire movie. It's just this story of these, this group of people trying to get to this person to show them and to show up and to show that they care. You see this, and remember this, in Nemo's Shock. Uh, in relief, in comfort, when his father finally finds him across the entire world. Right? The story of Nemo, um, going all the way to, or Nemo's dad going all the way to find Nemo. Or when Woody exclaims, Buzz, guys, hey, how'd you find me? He came because he knows and he cares. What an amazing reminder. No matter where you're at this morning, no matter what week you've had, No matter what year you've had, no matter the trials or the joys, know this. He cares deeply for you, and He has proven that by coming down. And thirdly, as we seek to understand the meaning behind the name Yahweh, we not only know that He has come down, we not only know that He cares deeply, but thirdly, in verses 8-14, through we see that the Lord certainly delivers. It is it is amazing that the Lord not only comes down, not only cares deeply, but he's then able also to save. Uh, If he just came and just knew, but had no ability to do anything about it, we would be without hope. But we see in these verses that we have a God who certainly delivers. Let the beginning of verse 8 sink in for a second. The Lord says, I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them. The Lord knew the oppression, could not handle it anymore. He couldn't wait any longer. His perfect, sovereign timing had come. He could not stand to see the suffering of his people anymore. So he declares that he will deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. He's going to take them out Take them out of the bad situation that they are in. Take them out of the oppression and the slavery, the lack of joy, the lack of hope, the lack of, the lack of just relational good. He's going to take them out of that. He says that He's going to bring them into the good. Bring them out of slavery to the most powerful nation in the entire world. And the Lord is going to bring them into good. If you continue to look at verse 8, and so it says that the Lord is going to bring them to a good land. A good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Amor- the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Instead of slavery, the Lord is going to bring his people into their own land. And it is a very good land. It's a very good land. Good land. We see how good it is as the Lord describes it. He says it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And milk and honey are, are really awesome and precious goods. But, but it, they prove that there's a lot of vegetation and a lot of flowers. right? You can't have a bunch of milk if there's no food for the cows to eat. You can't have a bunch of honey without flowers all over the place. All green for the bees to go out. You have a really good, green, luscious land. And he calls it broad. It describes this land as a land where it used to be six tribes used to inhabit this land. Now just the Lord's people are going to. It's going to be a great, vast land. Six tribes used to take it up, and now just one will. Yahweh is going to restore his people. He's going to bless them. He's going to take them out of the bad and place them into the good. And he gives Moses a sign that this will surely come to pass. In verse 11, Moses doubts. But the Lord answers that doubt in verse 12. And in verse 12, the Lord says, And this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. And If you're paying specific attention, that's that's kind of weird. The Lord makes a promise, and then here is the sign of the promise. You will worship me, but the sign comes after the promise is already fulfilled. Calvin says, still this promise appears neither very apt nor opportune, since it would not exist in effect till the thing was done. The sign of the promise doesn't come until the promise is already complete. So what is God promising? God says, I will be with you. I will deliver you. Follow after me, be my instrument, and in the end you will know that it was me who delivered you. It's going to happen. You will see. When you lead the people out of Egypt, you will come back to this very mountain, Mount Horeb, which is also referred to as Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain. Or Lord says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to bring them right back to this same exact um, mountain, and you will worship me. What more promise does Moses need? Well, Moses asked this question in verse 11 because the Lord has told him, That Moses is going to be the instrument by which God is going to save his people. Moses is going to be the instrument. In verse 10, we see that the Lord tells Moses that he is going to send him to Pharaoh to bring his people out of Egypt. And of course, course, Moses asks, who am I? What What am I going to do against the most powerful country in the entire world? And Yahweh's response is beautiful, because he doesn't specifically answer Moses' question of who am I, but he responds with who he is as the Lord. One commentator says, Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task is correct, but entirely beside the point. He is not doing the saving. Calvin again says, We seek no ground of confidence apart from him. It is enough that he is on our side. God is going to use this weak, sinful, needy man to accomplish his amazing plan of deliverance. A humbled shepherd who has not been back to Egypt for 40 years. This is what the Lord is going to use. And he uses this lowly, sinful man in order to prove that it's not this man who's delivering and who's saving, but the Lord. It's the Lord who's going to bring this deliverance. All Moses has to do is trust and to follow the Lord's directing. Well, have you ever felt yourself too small to help in the kingdom of God? Have you felt yourself too foolish or inadequate to evangelize, to persuade people that following Jesus Christ is the only way to joy and hope and peace? Have you felt yourself too weak and too sinful to nurture the heart of your children? Now, following after Jesus is the most amazing and joyful and amazing opportunity that we have. Well, God answers you as he answered Moses. The Lord says, I am. All that you have to do is respond as Moses did in verse 4 and say, here I am. Offer yourself to the Lord and say, here I am. I, I know you can use me. I know you use sinful, weak, horrible people all the time. Here I am show that same response of being teachable, prepared to obey your Lord. It's not about the instrument. It's about the Lord. Well, when Moses went back to God's people in Egypt, and Moses told them of their imminent deliverance, he's going to give give them the name of their God. So as we conclude, we ask what Moses asks in verse 13, what is his name? First, I Am has come down. As Moses still had a a really vague and narrow understanding of the name of the Lord, after God's people are delivered from Egypt, um, uh, Moses sings this great song of deliverance in Exodus 15 and and speaks of how amazing the Lord is and all this wonderful things that he has done in, in fulfilling the promise. And yet, Moses still knows so much less compared to you and I about the name of Yahweh. You and I know so much more about Yahweh than Moses did. The second person of the Trinity, the one in that burning bush, the one who promised upon his own life as he passed through this carcass pathway of Genesis 15, has put on human flesh. He has made that arduous journey From heaven to earth. And Jesus himself reveals himself in John 8, 58. And says, before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh has come. Emmanuel, God with us. The meaning of the name of Yahweh is most clearly seen in Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate revelation of God. And he came to earth. Jesus did. But why did he come to earth? Well, Jesus came down because he deeply cares. He was not blind or deaf to our condition. He's not blind or deaf to your condition and your state this morning. He was not oblivious to his people here on earth. He knew that we were born in sin. That before his work in us, we were slaves of the devil. That we had no joy Surely had no hope that we were suffering under the reign of death. Yet Jesus saw, heard, and knew. Jesus cared enough to come down. And he came down to deliver. To deliver us out of darkness in the muck of this world without Jesus Christ. Into his marvelous light. And this deliverance is through the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Again, this flaming torch uh, that put his life on the line. This messenger in the bush. And as we continue to read through Exodus, all of Exodus is about this lamb that will be slain to deliver, to save. That same person did come. He did give his life. He did save Through his own blood. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the name of Yahweh. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, what's in a name? Well, in the name of Yahweh, as we have revealed here in Exodus 3.14, in just this one name, just Yahweh, we have a huge story. An amazing story. So much meaning. In the name Yahweh, we have the Gospel. A God who came, who cares, and delivers. If you don't know this name this morning, and especially if you don't know the name of Yahweh in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't love this God, if you still feel a bondage to sin with with no joy, or hope. If you still feel like, you know what, I I I feel like I am in Egypt, just enslaved to my own sin, uh, not having no word from God, not hear but not being able to hear him, no no desire to seek after him and to respond to him. If that's where you find yourself today, God calls to you right now through his word. His spirit has come down right now, today, to speak to you through his word. He has literally come here to speak with you because he cares. Because he has seen, he hears, and he knows. And he is able to certainly deliver you and bring you into the good, into the joy, into the hope, into the peace. It's not about you. It wasn't about Moses. It wasn't even about the Israelites. It's about God. We do not have a God, or we do not have to come to Him perfect. He came for the sick. And He offers Himself to all of us today. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will have a restored relationship with this relational person personal and loving God. You'll be freed from the reign of the devil in darkness. You'll be freed from that here and now and be brought into the good. And one day you will be brought into the ultimate good forever. The new heavens and the new earth. You'll be taken out of this existence and be brought into a perfect, all good, all amazing, all joy forever. Brothers and sisters, do you love the name of Yahweh? Do you love just the name Jesus Christ? When I when you hear the name Jesus, does that spark so much joy and so much hope and so much warmth within your heart? As if I were to speak um, the name of maybe of one of your children, or if I said if I said Daddy, or does it does it just well up so much joy and hope within your heart? Look what He has done for you. Look at what he has done for us. Do you trust him that he sees and cares and knows? Believer, look to the cross. Your God has come. Your God cares deeply. And your God certainly delivers. Be acquainted daily with his name. Put this name on your tongue often as you come to him in prayer. And as you die in his name, he will bring you into his kingdom. Because of your faith in his kingdom name. Amen. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are a revealing God, that you come to us, that you make yourself known to us. Lord, without you, we have no hope. We have no joy. We have no peace. And yet with you, a God who comes, a personal God, a God who is everywhere. Lord, you offer everything. Lord, you see, you know, you hear, and you're certainly able to deliver. And we thank you so much that you have shown that most clearly in the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you are a God who comes and a God who loves us and cares about everything in our lives. A God who has redeemed us and has so much good, has purposes of good. Lord we thank you so much. We thank you for the gospel, we thank you for your love. Praise so on Jesus name. Amen.